The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Folks, sometimes you catch me on a good day. Sometimes you catch me on a bad day. We do this show towards the evening, so you never know what the day has done to me by the time we get to showtime and what sort of uh, difficulty or happiness I'm bringing to the show, but I'm happy to report that for this episode, for tonight, as we record this, I am in a fabulous mood, viewers and listeners, and here's why. Normally, when I'm in a good mood, for the people who know this show, they know it's because a Miami sports team somewhere in the world is doing well, and this week is no exception. This time, it's baseball. My Miami Marlins, in in a shock to all of us, frankly, are playing some pretty terrific baseball lately. As we're recording this right now, I believe the Marlins are up by like 10 million runs on the Dodgers right now. And we're in a pennant race, which is not something I'm used to as a Marlins fan, and I'm enjoying every bit of it. So I got that to smile about. I have the fact that we have a great guest this week to smile about. We're going to be joined later in the show by Professor Tony Ilya Costas of New York Law School. He's an entertainment law expert, IP law expert, and a fantastic TikToker. And we got lots of questions for him. That's going to be really, really terrific in the next segment. And as if that wasn't enough to make me happy and to make all of you happy as well, we got ourselves a terrific co-host this week. One of our favorites, Gideon King, investor, musician, frontman for Gideon King and City Blog joining us. It is so good to see you, Gideon. Man, how are you? You look good. You look happy. Are you really that happy? I am really that happy. Can I share this happiness with you? Are you a baseball fan, Gideon? I am, and you know the Marlins are what seventy-one and sixty-seven, so that's okay. <laughs> for for Marlins fans, that's like being one hundred and sixty-two and zero. And by the way, by the way, it's better than the Yankees, who have a budget which is nine hundred and sixty times what the Marlins is. So you know, I mean, seven. I can't remember the last time we were seventy-one and sixty-seven in <clears throat> September. That is that is unusual for me. And as a Yankees fan, you should always be happy when the Marlins are good because you know those players are going to be your players in like three or four years when we sell them to you because we're basically your AAA franchise. We'll figure out a way to make them worse once they come to the Yankees. We'll, we'll <laughs> Thanks get, for we, uh, taking that we, Giancarlo Stanton we, contract, exactly. by the way. We will get it done. You don't, worry, you don't have to worry. Well, here's the Marlin that I've fallen in love with. <clears throat> and this always happens to me where a baseball player comes along that just makes me smile. I develop an unhealthy obsession with them. And this time, the player that has done that for me is the Marlins recently acquired third baseman, Jake Berger. Are you familiar with Jake Berger? Oh, there he is. Producer Lawrence got his picture ready. Oh, my gosh. Are you familiar with the greatness that is Jake Berger? Vaguely. Well, for the radio audience who can't see this glorious picture, if you want to know what Jake Berger looks like, just close your eyes and imagine what you think somebody named Jake Berger would look like, and you'd be right. 
Because, <laughs> I mean, and you know what? You know what I think I like him so much, getting other than the fact that he hits like just monster home runs, is he's a throwback to me. Because when I was growing up watching baseball as a little kid, all the great baseball players like looked like your unathletic dad, right? They had mustaches. They were overweight. They look like they could be on your beer league softball team. Yeah. And like, that's, that's what baseball was. Baseball was a bunch of fat guys who like smoked cigarettes and drank in the dugout and hit 340. Right. And today they're all like super chiseled and muscular and you can't, and they can't even hit 220. I feel like baseball was better when we let fat people oh. play it. And Jake Berger is that to me. He's the oh, throwback. He, but here's the weird thing. Well, first of all, you remember Babe Ruth? I think it was Babe Ruth, right? Who said, We're not athletes, we're baseball players. And so <laughs> yeah. that's, that sort of embodies what you're talking about. But what's so weird is that it seems like, given how ripped they all are, you, you would think that they would be less injury prone. But like the injuries in baseball are, they they make teams almost unwatchable now. I mean, it's every Yankee gets injured every few months, even if we pay him four hundred million bucks a minute. Um, so I don't get it. I don't get why being that ripped is inversely proportional um, with uh, with physical health, unless of course, you know, the old steroid chick trick is at is at work. Who knows? There, perhaps there's something happening there that might have something to do with it. Maybe knows. it's just, maybe it's just the layers of fat that like protect your ACL from getting torn. Possible. I don't know. But like, I mean, just look at that face. It just makes you smile with the, uh, with which it's, it's the mustache, which he actually admitted like that mustache isn't normal to him. That's not his default mustache. He grew it out as a joke and then started hitting a ton of home runs. And he's like, all right, I guess I'm a mustache guy now. Um, which is just glorious. So anyway, how, that's what's putting me in a good mood right now. How much How much is he paying you for this plug? And should you be doing that type of thing if you're a lawyer? That's the real question for the show. That's it know. is it is a public service. I mean, <laughs> we we need Come more on, we need more beer league softball players that look like our dad in Major League Baseball. They're an endangered species. We must cherish them and protect them from all the really muscular guys who look like Adonis but can't hit 220. I agree. Um, so, how have you been? I, you know, these, these a month goes by in between shows, and I, and I feel like we got to catch up. Like, all, all good where you are. I mean, you know what? I had a great summer. Um, I bought a Vespa, uh, which is a, a scooter, and I've been scooting around. Which is not the motorcycle guys. They look at me like I'm sort of like a wimp. Um, but you know, it still has a motor and two wheels. So I kind of feel like, you know, Jack Nicholson and five easy pieces or something like that. And I feel cool. And other than that, you know, I'm playing music and doing what I always do. And I'm, I'm upright on two feet. So that's a, that's a blessing. I suppose I'm no, we'll Jake take it. I'm no Jake Burger. Okay. I mean, I get that. I'm not a Jake Burger. <laughs> we can't but, all be like a, the, no, the I mean, specimen of, exactly. of, of beauty. That is Jake Burger. I'm getting a note from our producer that we need you closer to the mic. Oh, idiot. Yeah. Here I am. Here I am. How's that? <laughs> there is that we better? go. All right. I keep doing that. Sorry. Uh, I got like a Lauren was doing jazz hands in the window, Sorry. which makes me think that that's, that that's the ticket. That's what we want to go with there. Right. Got it. Um, a lot I want to talk to you about, Gideon, before we bring in Professor Ilya Costas, but um, first among which is, I think, what is the big story right now in entertainment law, and, and you know, you're fairly new to the Break the Business proceedings, so you don't know this, but basically, whenever Taylor Swift does anything, 
-hmm. We have to just stop the presses and just devote all of our content to whatever it is. Sometimes she does something really big, like, you know, telling Apple Music that if you're not going to pay your artists during the free preview period when you open up your platform, I'm not going to put my songs on your platform. And but like if she eats an egg salad sandwich, we're going to report on that, too. Whatever she's doing, we want to hear from Taylor Swift. And she had a pretty striking piece of news this past week that I wanted to chat with you about. So obviously the era's tour to call it a monster success would require a gift for understatement. And it was only a matter of time before she got the idea to film it and release it into theaters uh, as a concert film. I imagine it's going to be an incredible concert film and experts seem to agree as well, because some are predicting that it's going to have an open when, when that film gets released, it's going to have an opening weekend over a hundred million dollars, which is amazing for a concert film. But what was not known until recently Gideon was how she was going to release this film. I mean, the traditional route is that she would make this film and then work with one of the major studios mm -hmm. to help mm -hmm. distribute it to theaters. Mm -hmm. But it's been reported that she's uh, what she's decided to do instead is just cut the theater or cut the uh, distributors, cut the studios out entirely and do a direct deal with AMC, Cinemark and Regal to basically just directly bring her film to those cinemas without using the major studios. And what I think is cool about it, you know, since we're a celebration of basically doing things independently around here, this kind of fits the bill. But it was cool for me for two reasons. One is the obvious business reason. She stands to make a lot more money by basically cutting out the middle person that is these studios. And I think what's being reported is that the box office split that she's going to split between the theaters is going to be about 50 50. So yeah, yeah, yeah. of a hundred million opening weekend, that's a pretty nice payday for Taylor Swift. And the other thing that I think is intriguing about it, and I'm not even sure if this was intentional on her part, but it's kind of a good move PR wise. And because we're going through this labor dispute right now, you have the SAG after strike, you have the WGA strikes, and right now, the studios are desperate for something to distribute, right? Eventually, the current crop of stuff that they've already made is going to dry up, and they're going to want to put something out there. So a Taylor Swift concert film could be a life preserver for one of these studios to be able to release that while there's nothing else that they can release. But instead, Taylor Swift cut them out. And um, it was a good PR move because I think if she did do a deal with the studios, there are probably some people that might accuse her of scabbing, saying, oh, why are you helping the studios right now? We're trying to you know, win a labor dispute uh, with the actors and the writers. And now she gets to avoid that controversy by saying, no, I'm, you know, solidarity. I'm, I'm not working with the studios either. We're doing a deal directly with the cinemas and we're actually helping the cinemas, which is uh, something that I think the actors and the writers care a lot about, too, is supporting uh, the exhibitors right now who are going to be a collateral damage in this labor dispute. Uh, to me, it's it's a really cool story. Just another example of Taylor Swift changing the paradigm, doing something with a big splash and taking control of her career, which is you know, something we love to see around here. You know, here's the thing. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of um, kill the buzz here. Uh, but, but here, here, here's my reaction to this. First of all, Taylor Swift is an economic animal. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, so one, she's doing what's going to make her the most money. And it just happens to be 
um, in sync with political currents in the showbiz world right now. And I don't want to be attacked and beaten to death by 17-year-old Swifties when I leave my apartment tomorrow morning um, <laughs> if, I, if I dare to trespass. I was on, about to say, on, be careful the enemies yeah, you're yeah, making right yeah, now. Yeah, I know, I know. If I dare to trespass on, on the, the, the love land of, 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 of Taylor Swift. Because for but, the record, for the Swifties out there, I love Taylor Swift and have no ill words to say about her. Uh, her brilliance as a songwriter equaled only by her entrepreneurial prowess. Just, you know, an amazing human all around. And uh, please don't be mad at me, Swifties. I don't need that kind of smoke. But, but, but here is the reality of what's actually happening with Taylor Swift in the world right now. She's become an economy unto herself. She's bypassing the studio because she can. It's not going to constitute a paradigm shift where artists and people in the long run bypass the studios because they need the studios. And notwithstanding this moment in time when there's strikes and there's negotiations and there's all this political radioactivity, like... She is about as much of, a, of an economic anomaly as possibly exists. So A, I'm sorry to say this, as much as I love a lot of her songs too, she's just an abstract economic concept that can circumvent the normal way of doing things, and that is exactly what she's doing. The other thing that I think is worth pointing out. And again, I don't want to be beaten to death, but the other thing that, that is, that is, that is worth pointing out is that I'm not so sure she's an economic hero for all of us more than she is an economic villain in some ways. And here's what, here's what I mean by that. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a businessman. I'm a capitalist. So I'm glad she's making $400 trillion per minute per show. But I, I, I will say this. There are now two types of people in the United States and, and in fact, the world. There are those that can, can afford to go to one of her concerts. Okay. And there are those that cannot. There are the haves and there are the have nots at an average price. According to the press, this is not me of two grand a ticket plus expenses for travel and merch and making your kids happy. What Taylor Swift is doing to music is, is sort of, you know, it's sort of a repeat of what happened to sports. When I was a kid, you could go to a Nick game and you can go for a few bucks and it wasn't billionaires. Um, and there wasn't sushi in the aisles. Um, and, 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 and when I was a kid, you could see Bob Dylan or you could even see you two a while ago and not, more or less have to go bankrupt to do so. So while Taylor Swift is certainly a, a, an iconoclast economically and is certainly trailblazing because she can, she is also actually um, tearing down in some ways the democratic nature of music in that she is not affordable. She is not affordable for the overwhelming majority of Americans. She has made it so that kids are turning on their, pulling up their Instagram account and seeing people in an incredibly extravagant suite, okay, posting pictures of Taylor Swift in a sparkly, uh, you know, $96,000 dress dancing. And, you know, the rest of the matting crowd just can't afford it. So like on the one hand, it's cool what she's doing. On the other hand, it's completely fine and, and cool with me. And it's, and it's probably legal and it, and it's probably a, a, a positive from a capitalist standpoint. It's actually, it's actually, she's becoming the, the, the anthropologist 
anthropomorphic embodiment of the delineation between those that have and those that do not have. And I actually think it's getting a little ugly, to be honest. Now, I just want to apologize. I really like her music. Um, <laughs> I like some of those dresses. I think she's an incredibly intelligent woman. She is a pioneer without a doubt, but she's killing the economic model of, of seeing music as much as anyone ever has in the history of concert going. Okay, you can kick me off the show now if you want. No, certainly leave. not. Do you want me I, just I mean, to leave? You want me to just leave now? Is that what you I want me to do? I don't think it's particularly fair okay, to fair you know, to hold Taylor Swift responsible for, you know, a lot of people being priced out of enjoying music as if Taylor Swift invented the expensive concert ticket. I, I mean, you know, like, you know, well, even producer Lauren, who just jumped in here, is upset. Go no, ahead, Lauren. I'm not upset. I was thinking about what Broadway did because I, I believe it was Rent that was the first one to do it, to write into their contract that the first two rows of the theater were to be sold at $20 a ticket, period, no matter what the rest of the house sold at, and they would be uh, raffled off before each show. And so it was a completely equal playing field. And I wonder if Taylor Swift or any of the other music artists out there can move to something like that, where you're saying, look, I get we're going to sell millions and billions of dollars worth of tickets, but there will always be the best seats in the house are going to go to whomever well, it is in the general public at an affordable price. And, and I'm sure she does some of that, by the way. But a, a I've lot never of the, seen that, yeah. but I don't know. But Listen, like a lot of the reason I, why these tailors like we're, we're seeing these very high price tags for Taylor Swift tickets, these are secondary market prices. I mean, the you know, right. if you if you're one of the very lucky people who was able to actually get a ticket when, you know, Ticketmaster was offering them in the first round of the general public before, you know, they bungled that like, you know, you could get a Taylor Swift ticket for anywhere between forty nine to five hundred dollars and even more for VIP packages. Right. The the exorbitant prices you're seeing right now is because people know how much people want to see Taylor Swift and a lot of secondary ticketing platforms have gotten a hold of these tickets. But the but and the resold them. But the economic reality is, Ryan, if you want to take your daughter or your son, I don't even know if you have daughters or sons, but let's say, hypothetically speaking, that you had progeny and you wanted to take them, okay, to a Taylor Swift concert, you would end up paying an amount that almost nobody can afford. And again, I'm not demonizing her for any of that. All I'm saying is that music, which is supposed to come from the streets and from the heart and from pain is becoming this like sparkly diamond fest. Like we turn on Instagram and there's Dua Lipa flipping her langoustine shrimps on her grill in a nice hotel in Greece. <laughs> Whereas like 30 years ago, 50 years, it was Jim Morrison like in a burnt out basement or it's like the guy from the Red Heart Chili Peppers. And I'm not, I'm not glorifying that either. I'm just saying that it's becoming a little graphic. This is a purely subjective thing. I wouldn't legislate, rule against it. It's cool. It's what she's doing. She's a pioneer. I personally, subjectively, am sort of getting put off by by it by it all because this oracle that she's becoming for seventeen years old, seventeen year old, is illusory, and it ain't worth no three grand for a night. That's a, that's purely subjective opinion. And again, I'll leave now if you guys want. Well, you're right. These concert tickets are expensive. And if only she were to, like, say, make a concert film 
that you know she was putting out into theaters that people would be able to watch her show quite affordably. I mean, that would really be the the best path here to kind of make her music accessible to everyone. Right, right, right. Um, but like, I mean, I also don't begrudge musicians who accumulate tremendous wealth and you know find opportunities to you know make money in many different industries and even sell products because you know what it used to be back when Jim Morrison was living in a shack somewhere there was still money being made but it was going into the pockets of record executives and people That's exploiting true. those artists and That's you know true. The same money that would, you know, if Elvis Presley were alive today, he would be doing those same thing and, and keeping all of that money instead of that money ending up in Colonel Tom Parker's pocket. Boy, that's a hard phrase to say. But I have a question for you. Yeah. And it's a simple question. Do you think out of the 118-year-old, we took a, a, a focus group of 118-year-olds and probably 97 to 99 of them, okay, um, can only see Taylor Swift on Instagram, okay? And maybe in this, you know, the movie theaters uh, in due course as this thing comes out. I just, I just wonder if deep in the psyche of these kids, they're feeling included in the spirit of, of some of this wonderful music, and she is a great songwriter, um, or whether or not, like, like, like is so often the case in, in social media, whether it really is a pushing away of these kids from the from the the exciting flame that that she is and that she's becoming this kind of impossible ideal as opposed to an artist sharing personal experiences and and that's a subjective thing for me i think that's what's happening right now she's becoming this impossible sparkly dream which is just frankly economically unattainable and i there's something about it that's like it's crossed over the threshold for me from sort of um, amazing and pioneering to sort of like, ugh, I, I don't know that I want to even see this anymore. I'm just wondering what you would have Taylor Swift do. Because Nothing different. <laughs> Nothing it, well, different. there, I mean, that's, I Nothing mean, and, and if you were Taylor Swift, it, you know, you'd probably do it this, the same way as would I, as would any other, you know, red-blooded capitalist. You're but absolutely right. If she were to price her concert, at $10 a ticket to make it accessible to anybody who wants to go, she could do three concerts a night in the largest stadium mm -hmm. for 365 days a sure. year, and there would still be 10 people for every, you know, one seat available for that concert. Right. Like, right. there's... You know, I mean, even like, I mean, like the amount of tour dates she has here is insane. I think she's doing like over 100 shows in big stadiums on five different continents and there are still people banging on the doors to get in. There's just not enough tickets. And again, the reason why the, the, the dollar values you're seeing that's secondary market, that's the, that's the supply and demand of the marketplace saying what she originally priced her Agreed. tickets at, which you probably still think is high is still too low. All the <laughs> points you make, all the points you make are great. And I agree with them as much as I agree with my own points, which is vigorously. Um, but, but, but I will say this, if you ask the question, is this Taylor Swift dynamic healthy, artistically and economically, I think the answer to that question is complex and not unilaterally obvious. Let me let me be down let me be let me be sort of moderate in at least saying it that way. Why can't you just enjoy the sparkly outfits? Fine, you know what? They're I'm so getting, sparkly. Going, you know what? I'm going to I'm I'm, you know, I'm going to Taylor. I'm going to the next show. I'll pay twenty grand. What the hell do I get? I don't, I'll sell my, I'll sell my freaking car. I'll go see Taylor. I want to hear it. 
I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> oh my God. And you know what I love about the Swifties is all I have to do is put Taylor Swift in the show description of this podcast anywhere. And they they come flocking. And oh God, it's either, I'm in trouble now. Oh no, you are you are in grave danger. My I take it back. Everything I said, I just take back. Today. She's like, <laughs> I'm going to see Taylor in 410 days. And I was like, are you counting down? She shows <laughs> right. me the screenshot right. of her phone right. that has the countdown continually happening. I was like, oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> well, I just but want it's... to apologize on behalf of myself and myself to all of the, 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 the listeners of this show. I apologize. I, just... I, I take it all back. <laughs> no, tape it. But I hear you say and you say you would both not do anything differently. And the one thing that I super want to applaud her on is I think a lot of people would do things differently because there is a way easier way out and she doesn't need that much money. She's doing a lot of work to do it all herself and to go independent and to distribute and make those negotiations herself. The studio route would have been easier for her, might have made her less money, but does she really need the extra hundred million dollars? On, like on the other hand, to, 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 to switch gears here totally and be as much of a hypocrite as humanly possible on air, um, <laughs> I guess what I will say is she is trailblazing for women. Okay, she is going to be a billionaire. She's going to own sports teams. She's going to own media empires. She already does in a, in a sense. So from that standpoint, she's doing God's work. Um, but but um, I can't help it. I have a kind of icky reaction to it all at this point. I think enough sort of it's like a kind of decadent sparkliness that I kind of don't I like anymore. Boy, what an upset that that Ryan comes in. Defending the capitalistic uh, impulses of the what's going and, on, and Gideon King is coming in like lamenting the <laughs> I know the good old I days know. where the money man. didn't matter I as know. much in the industry. What is going on? It's true. It's true. I I'm do want to show one of the comments that one of our listeners made, which I would love to see uh -oh. happen. So from our mouth to Taylor's ears, I now. I would like Swift to become her own distribution platform for others. Because it's cool what she's doing, and it's not a path that a lot of other people could take. But she could go the route of, you know what? I did it. I know how to do it. And uh, you want help doing things independently? Turn to me. Well, and it's I sort of. I mean, she can do the she can do the Madonna slash Alanis Morissette vibe. Um, I love both and, of those. Women. But that's not distribution. But it's it's a form. But she's not going to do plain out distribution because there's not enough money in it. And Taylor Swift oh. is an economic animal. I mean, I've well, always that thought is. that like she's not even being enough of an economic animal that if she could, if she really wanted to, like she could throw her weight around even more and take over even more of what she wants to do in the industry. I think the, the example that I think of from my own life is uh, one of you know one legal project that I do here in Miami, Gideon, uh, at least we did before COVID, was yep. Pitbull's New Year's Revolution. So this is a New Year's Eve show that Pitbull did from Miami. It was a competitor to the Dick Clark New Year's Eve in New York. So they had the New York show on uh, ABC, and then we did our show on Fox uh, from Miami. And I remember Taylor Swift used to be like a singer on the, you know, Dick Clark, Ryan Seacrest, right, right, ABC totally. broadcast. Right. And I remember for the longest time thinking if Pitbull could get his own New Year's Eve show and like get Fox to bankroll it. How, why does Taylor Swift just not go to one of these networks and say, whatever you have budgeted for New Year's, 
put it in my pocket. It's Taylor Swift's New Year's Eve. I'll produce the whole show for you. I will bring in all the guests. I'll I'll pay for the production. I'll do everything, and I'm going to be the boss at the top of the pyramid rather than just being you know Ryan Seacrest's hired gun. Because while that would be a good short-term trade, her stock in general would go down because of that. It would it would be a bridge too far, and she would be regarded as egomaniacal. So it would be a it would be a good short term trade, but in the long term, the Taylor Swift stock I don't know what the symbol is TSW something it would go down. <laughs> well, see now that's an interesting sociological question because like nobody accused Pitbull of that. <laughs> well, that different vibe. Because yeah, it's like, oh yeah, we oh, Mr. Worldwide, of course he can have his own show. Like he's he's worldwide. You know, that's a that's an interesting question. It's all right, before right. we go to break, yeah. Yeah. uh you know, since we do love your perspective on things, and as and as much as we are sort of goofing with you about like you no know, being controversial <laughs> and being against Taylor Swift on something, we do love your perspective. And so that's why we have the Gideon King Wheel of Topics, which we just brought out here for the live streaming audience, where we basically uh, to, to remind people how this works, Gideon sends us a ton of topics by email every month of the things that he wants to talk about on this show. And rather than me trying to figure out which of these many topics I want to talk to him about, we put them all on a wheel, we spin the wheel, and whatever the wheel lands on, we're going to get Gideon's thoughts on that subject. So without further ado, let's spin the wheel and see what we're going to talk about for a few minutes before we go to break. I love those very high-budget sound effects. So the topic for you this time, Gideon, is, is social media your friend or foe? Does it distract from creating authentic musical expressions or does it help or both? That's, I'm pretty interested in your thoughts on that as you're moving your band forward through New York. And I know you sort of have a love-hate relationship with social media and your own experience. Where do you stand on this? I think what I would say is that from a strictly business standpoint, it can be your friend because it's a form of distribution of your content and distribution of your vibe that's generally free and effective if employed the right way. But I would say creatively, I think it's the foe and here, a foe and here's why. And I know it. Like I just posted something on social media the other day and my manager said, oh, cool, you got 700 likes or whatever. And we were like, yay, um, which is sort of pathetic anyway for two grown men. But like, whatever, that's, that's that. we know I'm a hypocrite and now we know I'm now we know I'm pathetic, too. So it's fine. Um, this has been a cathartic uh, session. But but um, I guess good I therapy guess, session. Yeah, this it's just awesome. I'll pay you. So so no, I mean, um, but creatively, like the other day I put out a video. And I played just this sort of like little sort of classical folk thing. And I spent a lot of time writing it. And then I filmed it and I f***ed it up three times. So I had to film it again and play it again. I forgot you're not supposed to swear, but whatever. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so I played it again. And then I just looked at my watch. And I spent from like 12.34 to like 3.15 creating a piece of music purely for social media and all that creative energy that went into it, which was real. It was vigorous. I had to get it right. I had to write this, this cool triadic thing on guitar, but like a whole day went by without really sort of truly writing a composition that was complete without writing something 
that was a full expression from the from the heart although what i wrote was from the heart kind of but it was it was for social media and so what what's happening is that the human spirit and the creative spirit only has so much creative energy and the 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 sheer logistical reality of having to devote a meaningful part of that creative energy to social media takes away from the the purity of creative expression in writing music and so all this energy is going into instagram posts and that's why really so many artists are just not really making that much music they don't put out a cd every year they sort of have a single and then they post and then and then they collaborate with 68 people to write the next song but like artists are not putting out complete albums they're not putting out fulsome expressions and i really believe that's because of the foe of social media that it simply saps you of a meaning part of your creative energy i know that last sunday or two sundays when i did this video that is exactly what happened to me an enormous part of my writing spirit and creativity was drained into this social media nonsense and then my manager calls me says you got 700 likes and it's like okay let's celebrate you just emptied your your tank creatively into into the into the the ether and it's like is that a pyrrhic victory or what it is interesting to hear your perspective on the relationship between creativity and social media. And it is a perspective I've heard from other creators where, you know, they sort of see creativity and creative energy as a finite pool. And yeah, every yeah. ounce that you develop toward a killer social media post saps your ability to do something creative on a project like an album. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I don't disagree that, that that could be the case for a lot of artists. I've heard a lot of, of artists say that, the creativity in one can feed the creativity in the Absolutely. other where, you know, social media for them is just another opportunity to do a creative thing. And they see that as just another outlet for their creativity. They make TikToks, they do social media posts, they write essays, and it can yes. help fuel their creative soul and allow them to make more music. And, and really, I don't think it's a matter of one artist being right and one artist being wrong, no, but just rather right. artists having a different relationship with this medium. You're right. I mean, the one thing I might say, though, and you were in such a good mood at the beginning of this. I don't know if some of my negativity has killed your bet, your good mood. I hope not. I think uh, we need to I'll, see that picture of Jake Berger again. That'll, maybe that'll uh, maybe I'll tell you a joke and that'll elevate your spirits. But 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 the only thing I might say in response to that is that yes, it is an outlet for your creativity, and it is a it is a part of the holistic creative output. Social media. But it is these little 15-second clips for the most part. It, it sort of lets you off the hook in a way uh, creatively. So I don't know, man. I have pretty... I do it because I got to do it because I have a band and I want to get followers and likes and streams. So I do it, but I'm super, I'm super conflicted about it. Well, we'll have to get a TikToker's perspective on this Absolutely. in the next segment, see how Absolutely. he feels about it. So we're going to take a quick break and bring out our guest, uh, TikToker, but also happens to be a law professor, too. Uh, Tony Ilya Costas is going to be joining us. Don't go anywhere. Keep checking out Break the Business. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. 
If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, you lovely humans. Thank you for checking us out wherever you're checking us out, whether it's on all major podcasting platforms, live streaming platforms, or Sirius XM 145. Much love to Slam Radio. Wherever you are taking in this program, we are just glad that you are. Ryan Corelli here with Gideon King. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week. He is an entertainment attorney and law professor who currently teaches entertainment law and intellectual property at New York Law School. He also co-hosts the entertainment law podcast End Scene, and you can find him at The IP Professor on TikTok, X, and Instagram, and you can check out his The IP Professor merch store at Inksoft. We are happy to welcome Tony Ilyacostas on Break the Business. Hi, Tony. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Gideon. How are you guys doing? Doing very, very well. Love the setup. Love that you are rocking the IP Professor merch. That is a true indie creator, never missing out on an opportunity to uh, sell the product. Love it. This is grassroots marketing. If there ever is, you know, like a case study to look at it. So proud to rock the merch. It's it's great. Uh, I'm not saying it just because it's mine. It really is good quality stuff. Not sure where to begin with you here. Tony, there's a a lot of different areas to go with here, and and I will say on the front end, we've had very few law professors on this program, and that is by design because, like any lawyer, I have a lot of anxiety whenever I get too close to a law professor. It brings up a whole bunch of negative memories, and so I only bring one on when I feel like this is somebody we're going to vibe with. So we had a law <laughs> professor on a few months ago who. Uh, made graphic novels with a New York Times bestselling author. I was like, all right, that's pretty cool. We'll let him in. And then we have you, an entertainment law professor. That's already pretty cool. A podcaster. All right, okay. Maybe we're going to let our guard down a little bit. And then a TikToker. As if, and probably, I mean, I would say definitely my my favorite entertainment law professor follow on TikTok, although I'm not sure what competition you have there, but a <laughs> lot to like. So, I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, though, they're, they're, that's sort of a, a kind of a, a, a lane in which you're by yourself. I'm sure there might be another entertainment law professor flowing around on that platform, but you're the first person I think of, and you're amazing at it. I love your TikToks. What got you into using that platform? Um, I... I, it, that's a great question. I would say it 
briefly, it really starts from when I was in my law school days where, you know, I was trying to figure out how to get into the business. I was really interested in sports law. I wanted to become an agent, but then I realized that being a sports agent really isn't all that it's cut out to be, but still really passionate about being a sports lawyer and practicing that as a profession. So during my one L year of law school, I had started my own video blog called Law and Batting Order. So if you're a baseball fan and a Law and Order fan, it's like a dream come true right there with that title. But um, I, I worked on that basically throughout my entire three years of law school and a little bit after. And that was essentially my first footing into content creation in the legal space. But obviously, as a law student, you know, you're trying to get, you know, you're trying to get some attention and you're trying to get some buzz. And, you know, you I network with some attorneys, but who the heck wants to listen to some law student talk about sports law topics as if they're an expert. And I wasn't by any means hailing myself as an expert. I just wanted to get involved in content creation, tap into a, a marketplace early. And also at the same time, sort of, you know, uh, practice what I was learning in the law school classroom. So I treated law and batting order as kind of like a legal version of sports center covering sports law topics. Didn't really kick off. Time goes by. I began teaching at New York law school in 2019 the pandemic happened, so I'm teaching on Zoom. So really, I had no social interaction for a, a good year, up until I would say April of 2021, where I'm halfway through teaching another Zoom session of uh, intellectual property at New York Law School. And then I said to myself, you know what, I have a very unique teaching style. And I really love content creation. And I really love engaging with people on social media. I know that this niche topic of intellectual property could get some buzz, especially because, you know, there was a lot going on even in the IP uh, era during this time uh, during the pandemic, you know, with Tiger King. And there were a lot of little IP nuggets of info in some of those episodes. Um, there was streaming, the proliferation of streaming at that time. So much was happening in current events. And I thought to myself, why not take that to the social media space? So originally I started the IP professor on Instagram, slowly then branched over to TikTok. And essentially, the rest is history. I've tried to do videos daily uh, covering a bevy of different IP topics, whether it's a current events topic or an evergreen topic. And, you know, I, I'm not by any means a massive influencer. I've, I would consider myself sort of like a sub, sub, sub micro influencer. But, you know, with the 3,000 people, 3,000 plus people that follow me on Instagram and TikTok separately, so altogether 6,000, you know, it's good. It, it feels good to know that there are people that are interested in learning the subject matter. And, you know, they want to, they, they realize that intellectual property is something worth paying attention to. Have any of the really old, crusty, super tenured professors on your faculty found out about your TikTok side gig yet? Have any of them like dropped their monocles in shock because you're on the same platform where like teenagers are dancing? Uh, two times this has happened actually. So uh, the first time, a very good friend of mine, uh, Dan Lust, who is an amazing sports lawyer and has his own podcast, Contact Detrimental. Um, he, I, I was able to convince him, or not necessarily convince him, but I was able to walk him through the process of what it takes to become an adjunct professor. And I had pitched his name strongly to New York Law School to have him as a sports law professor at New York Law School. Sports law was essentially a defunct course at New York Law School for practically a good five years. And I, I really thought that he was someone that could really, really benefit from teaching and the school would benefit from getting a, a wealth of knowledge in someone like Dan. So we had made like a funny parody video where it was essentially a copycat of the end scene or the end credit scene in uh, Iron Man when Nick Fury emerges from the shadows and tells uh, Tony Stark, 
I'm here to talk about the Avengers Initiative. So I, we did that parody. We posted on LinkedIn, very innocuous. I get an email from the dean that apparently some of the faculty member, I guess the tenured ones, thought that this put a bad image for the school. So they, I was told to, quote, accelerate the shelf life, which has become an inside <laughs> joke between me <laughs> and Dan, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, some of the professors, uh, I think, would not take uh, to heart the fact that I one of my most viral videos is a video of me doing the Princess Diaries wave at graduation this past graduation. <laughs> it got went to, 2 million views on TikTok. That has never happened to me. And uh, I, I literally, the caption says, when you're the youngest law school professor and you act like a kid uh, when, you're, when you see yourself on camera. I mean, they would, every, and everybody on the camera is old, 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 old. And then there's little 34 year old me on camera. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a unique experience. Um, I don't really get, get, get it to my head. It doesn't get to my head too much. Um, I just go with my own flow and I know that what I'm providing is authentic content. And if a tenure professor has a problem with it, then it, I think I'm doing something right because I think I'm kind of breaking the mold and sort of shattering the stereotype of typically what comes with being a law school professor. Gideon, the phrase accelerate the shelf life on that just triggered my law student fight or flight response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause it just, it just reminded me of like every, like, you know, passive aggressive, nasty thing. Like a law school administrator has had to tell me, um, right. you know, because of like something I did that I wasn't supposed to do. It's just like, Oh, it just gave me a chill. Like, we need you to accelerate the and shelf came, life. On and this came from the Dean of the law school, which oh, I was man. Like, even worse. Um, I was very pained by that, but you know, whatever. I mean, he knows <laughs> that I do these videos, but it's also a shame that like New York law school's Instagram account, like refuses to promote my videos. So I'm like, I guess I'm like kind of, now nah, I don't want to say I'm on a blacklist. I'll say I'm on a gray list if you will, but <laughs> Hey, whatever, you know, it is what it is. Oh man. See, well, cause like, you know, you, you seem like you're a hit with the students, so they have to, they got to tolerate you. You're, you know, you're like the baseball player who is like, you know, you know, make you know, goofing around too much in the locker room, but you're hitting 40 home runs a year. So they can't, you know, send you down to the minors. You know, since you were mentioning Jake Berger, uh, with the Marlins, I'm going to say that the equivalent of that, uh, like a analogy is like Nick Swisher with the Yankees when he oh, was with yeah, the Yankees. Swish. Yeah. So I think I'm kind of like that Nick Swisher type of character within the uh, New York Law School hallways. Certainly, you know, I mean, the registration is always through the roof. They It always maxes out and practically registrar has to kind of exceed the cap um, it, to the point that they even moved my class later this semester for entertainment law. So instead of teaching at six o'clock, I got to schlep all the way to New York Law School at 7.50 a night, teach here until 9.30. And yet I still had 59 students lined up to sit. And I, I mean, like I told them, I said, <laughs> You would, ra would you rather sit through my class? The fact that you want to sit through my class and learn rather than like, you know, I don't know, watching sports or even watching the 9 p.m. premiere of Ahsoka every every Tuesday night on Disney Plus. Like to me, the fact that you chose me over that, that that's an honor. That's something I take. <laughs> They're pushing him later, later. They're treating him like all the nudity on HBO. <laughs> Like, <laughs> exactly in the spring you're going to be doing like an 11 30 p.m class and you're still going to have like 60 students who want to take it i love this bad boy of the legal academy uh tony Ilya costas joining us here on break the business let we should give you an opportunity to show off some of your entertainment law bona fides less people think that you're just here to to make a ruckus and not bring the substance we've been there's been a lot of entertainment law topics that just have been flowing through our 
our program lately, and I'd love to get your thoughts on at least one of them here. And that was a couple weeks ago, we reported on a recent federal court ruling uh, in which a, a federal judge in D.C. held that a basically a work of graphic art that was created 100 percent by an A.I. system could not qualify for copyright protection. And what I thought was interesting about that case is that the judge even admitted in the ruling, look, this is an easy legal question. Like if something has no human input, it can't get a copyright. But there, the next version of this question is not going to be as easy. There are a lot of tricky legal questions about the role that AI plays and what role copyright plays with that, that we're going to have to figure out as a legal system. And so I'm interested in, in your perspective on that. Like, as you look at AI and copyright law, like, what is the big issue that is, you know, exciting you or perhaps scaring you? There's a lot from that ruling that I could take away from. But I think first and foremost, the fact that we have now the first piece of case law solidifying that artificial intelligence is incapable of receiving copyright protection, to me, that is the most significant takeaway from that decision. At this point in time, we were only relying on the compendium, which is more of a persuasive form of uh, documentation from the U.S. Copyright Office. And we had decisions coming out of the Copyright Claims Board. That's it. That's all we had. So the fact that we have a federal judge in the D.C. District Court making this statement, this is significant. Second, I have no doubt that Dr. Stephen Thaler is going to appeal this to the Third Circuit and eventually appeal this to the Supreme Court. And listen, uh, Ryan, you know full well how selective the Supreme Court is. There are tons of writ of certiorari that get sent to the Supreme Court every single day, every year. And the, the U.S. Supreme Court is extremely meticulous and nitpicky and weeding out the cases that they will hear. I have no doubt that this case will be heard by the Supreme Court if it got to that level. I think that this is too significant to not, to not have at the highest court level. So I think that that's another takeaway that I, I think, uh, or a hot take, I guess, a prediction that I have from this case. Now, that said, I think I, we all saw this coming. The Naruto v. Slater case is the penultimate case that I think serves as a complement to this whole decision. For any viewers or listeners that don't know, Naruto v. Slater is the monkey selfie case. You know that photo, the iconic photo of the monkey taking a selfie of himself? I can see it in my head when I close my eyes. Just Big you know, smile. Smiling it, monkey, yeah. <laughs> so he grabs the camera, he touches the shutter, grabs the photo. The argument in that case was, could the monkey be the copyright owner? And from that case... The, the court ruled that even though the monkey created a copyrighted work by touching the shutter, he can't be the copyright owner because he can't contemplate the rights that come with becoming a copyright owner. The moment you make any work of authorship, there are exclusive rights that are vested with that copyright owner, all laid out in 17 USC uh, 10, uh, 106, if I'm not mistaken. Um, all that's laid out, the reproduction right, the right to create derivative works, the right to publicly perform it, public display right. All of it laid out, six of them. How can the monkey know if someone infringes on his photo and he can go after them with the cease and desist, or he can go after them by purchasing an index number and following a copyright infringement lawsuit against their infringer? Guess what? He can't. So Naruto v. Slater was the setup for this case. Um, but either way, we still had this whole question of 
substantial human involvement, what qualifies as that? That's the only assessment that we had from the Copyright Office. It is not written in the Copyright Act of 1976. It was never written in the Copyright Act of 1909. We've only had case law previously address that a human author has to be an essential part of the creation of a copyrighted work. But that's it. We really didn't have anything else beyond that. So I think the next question that's going to come up in future case law is, what then qualifies as substantial human involvement? Is it 50%? Is it 51%? How much humanity do you need? Exactly. 60%, 65%. Could it even be a little bit less? Could it be proportioned out where there's still a majority involving a human? So a perfect example of this kind of coming into play, um, the Secret Invasion series that was on Disney Plus by Marvel features an intro that was apparently completely generated using uh, artificial intelligence. All those episodes of Secret Invasion are registered in the U.S. Copyright Office. They're public. You can go check it out for yourself. My question is, how could it get copyright registration? Did Marvel have to disclaim that it, the intro contains uh, an AI-generated intro? Or did they disclaim it and the Copyright Office is only granting protection for the actual content of the episode? Or if they are including the AI-generated intro in the copyright registration, are they viewing the totality of the episode being authored as a human, therefore the whole work can be registered as a copyright. So all these questions are still lingering. And I think that that's what's what's to come in future days. Tony, let me ask you a question. And I've been thinking about this. When I call up chat, whatever, or AI art or whatever I have on my iPhone over here, and I say, I don't really, I love it when Gideon is dismissive of technology with that I, voice. <laughs> I don't, yeah, sorry, but I don't, and I want to not, it. and I want to not pay a graphic designer seven hundred and twenty-five dollars to come up with my artwork. So I type in um, "cold steel" and "sadness" into the art program in AI, okay, and it comes up with you know one image I don't like it. Then I hit another one. Then I work it. Then I send it into another program, PixArt. Then I send it to another one. You can see I have no social life. Okay, this is what I do with my life. So, 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 and I do that. And I get, and I arrive at the image, which will be the cover art for my next single that I release. Here's what I don't understand when you talk about human involvement. The fact that I'm invoking or, or leeching to the surface these images with my keywords, my queries, and all that stuff. Is that the human involvement to which you refer? Or is the human involvement to which you refer the, the, the fact that AI is drawing from this, this, this sort of, you know, these billions of examples of, of, of visual images and, and somehow scrambling that egg? Because it seems to me that any time there is a presupposed utility, okay, then there is a human whose intention was to have that utility because right now robots are not releasing music of their own volition yet, but I am, and I'm typing some things in. So don't I get credit for the originality of that art? And is that the human involvement that you're referring to? Do you understand my question or am I jumbling this up? I totally understand. And this is actually, I think the next great divide in this whole discussion. So the question I think we need to ask also, or I guess a derivative of what you're bringing up is, is you, is your act of typing in a prompt enough to qualify a substantial human involvement? That's, and that's, that's how I should have asked the question. That was easier, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's the, that's essentially the heart of this. Right. Um, uh, 
a lot of people say no. A lot of people say yes. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that it's a matter of looking maybe in a more macro point of view, which is, are we in a position right now to say that generative AI is a tool or is the is it the replacement to the mind, the actual mm. inception of an idea that's in your head that then you can formulate in some form of work of authorship? This is the heart of the idea expression dichotomy that runs through the veins, through the arteries of copyright law. Because to deny that that is substantial human involvement that rises to the level of, 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 of the legal concept of intention and the monkey really did really does intend to enforce his, his, his rights has disparate horrible impacts because when you just say I want I want a reggae groove on a on a music program in your studio, boom, you have a choice of 50, 50 different grooves and part of the originality of your production is using the technology and 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 eliciting these these presets from the technology so to say that that isn't substantial human involvement entering the prompts gets pretty thorny and has pretty i think crazy potentially ugly disparate impact but i'm not a lawyer so i'm not going to talk anymore it, but it will. I think that this is exactly, I think, the next phase of these debates and what could come yeah. in future legislation. Um, I think kind of relevant to this point, since you brought up music, um, it, I, a student of mine, actually my TA, just sent me um, this post on Complex on Instagram that apparently the head of the Grammy Academy, uh, the Music Academy, said that the AI-generated song, Heart of My Sleeve, that featured an AI-generated version of Drake and Weekend yeah, yeah. could be eligible for a Grammy this coming round. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. He, if you read his comments, he said that um, it's because the lyrics themselves were authored by Ghostwriter, this uh, TikTok creator. But it was that taking the lyrics and transporting it into AI software that generated the voices of Drake and The Weeknd. That's where it becomes thorny territory, to quote, yeah. your, you, know, to quote you. And that's yeah. where... You know, it's a matter of could that aspect of it be protected under copyright law at this present time? The, the lyrics could, but it's not the actual performance of it because Drake and Weekend were not involved and that's not their actual voice. Ah, and, you know, a, based on case law, it's not, you know, it's not going to happen. Ah, super great explanation. I got I'm it. looking forward to some dude's laptop beating out Olivia Rodrigo for song of the year this year. That's going to be an <laughs> absolute blast. That is going to be must watch television for Grammys this year. Our guest, uh, Professor Tony Ilya Costas of New York Law School. You can check him out at the IP Professor on TikTok. His TikToks are awesome. Check him out on X Instagram. He's also got the entertainment law podcast End Scene. It is all great content to consume. And since uh, you're probably not a student at New York Law School, you can check out his class at 1145 at night. This is the best place to catch him. Uh, Tony, before we let you go, and there's so many things that we didn't get to, which means, you know, we have to have you on again, which I have no problem with. Um, but before we let you go, we got one last question for you, because this has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm excited to hear your answer to this. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Um, I think the most important thing that any indie creator can do is to pay attention to the headlines. Um, you may not realize how impactful and how substantial what's happening around us in the world could affect your business or your practice. So this whole discussion of AI is a thoughtful discussion to have with, with your own creation. If you plan on using AI, ask yourself, am I going to be able to get this copyrighted? Am I not? Why? Um, how can I work with a lawyer to kind of navigate these issues? All of these are kind of the pressing topics. You guys were talking about Taylor Swift. Th that's a f 
unbelievable story headline. Um, I mean, just from that story alone, you know, it's a it's a narrative of how you have an artist who is kind of sticking it to the system and is literally quite literally saying, this is my work of authorship, not yours. Suck it. And, you know, the fact that she can claim that hers is something that also indie creators can take notice of. Am I willing to forfeit the copyright or at least share the copyright of the hard work that I spent on some type of work of authorship with a corporate entity or with someone bigger than me with deeper pockets? I think that paying attention to the headlines, it could be a mirror image of indie creators and what they do on a daily basis. And I think that that's something that they should sincerely take to heart going forward as, as they progress in their business in whatever fashion. I mean, have the court spoken to the legal concept of suck it, Tony? Is that like, <laughs> I'm just curious, like what is that? A specific, I will say that sounds like a really arcane. I think I've missed, you know, I need to go to law school. Is that Latin? I, uh, well, yeah. I, I will. <laughs> That's right. Void <laughs> ab initio. Right. Uh, the derivative of suckus itis. Uh, <laughs> I got it. No, yeah, but, no, totally. But, but totally. what I was going to say is uh, classic one liner actually came from the uh, Barbie girl case, MCA versus Mattel. And in it, the, there was a whole dispute between Mattel saying that the Barbie pink was a trade yeah. dress to Mattel. And when MCA records used that same Barbie pink on the album for Barbie girl, that's an infringement of the trade dress. And literally the judge in that case said, chill. So the mm. fact that the judge knew to use popular <laughs> vernacular, I mean, listen, that's Good the, that's the beauty me. of the law. You can get away with that and it's going to become, it's going to live in like the legal hall of fame. If there ever is one, <laughs> I, I, I try to remember the quote for like, wasn't the, didn't the judge saying that it was like the parties are advised to chill or something yes. like that. It was, it was absolutely glorious. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, professor, thank you so much for hanging out with us this week. Your students are clearly lucky to have you and we were lucky to have you as well. Please don't be a stranger. We'd love absolutely. to have you on again real soon. Our thanks to Professor Tony Iliacostas, thanks to you Gideon King and producer Lauren, and thanks to all of you viewers and listeners for checking us out on Break the Business. We'll see you next week.